The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon and welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. If you're just joining, uh, my name is Arthi Swaminathan and I am a housing reporter for Market Watch. And I'll be your host for today. Welcome, everyone. On today's episode, uh, we're joined by Andy Walden, who is the Vice President of Enterprise Research and Strategy at Black Knight. And here's, he's here to talk about mortgage rates and home prices. So welcome, Andy. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate you having me. We have a lot to cover. So I'm just going to jump right into it, Andy. A lot of tension and confusion in the news cycle, just putting aside political drama. Job openings came out today that indicated the labor market is showing some signs of cooling. And that has a lot of implications for the housing market because it affects market rates. So very broadly, Andy, how would you describe the housing market today to set up this conversation? Oh, man, that's a that's a big question. Um, it, it's one that is very bifurcated, right? There's challenges on both sides. I mean, you tend to look at economic uh, areas as supply and demand driven, right? And, and when you look at home affordability, we're at, at the lowest level of home affordability in 40 years, right? And, and the rising interest rates that we've seen over the last couple of weeks continue to put pressure on that affordability. Demand is at its lowest level versus pre-pandemic averages that we've seen here this week, right? So very low levels of, of demand driven by this lack of affordability. On the other side of the house, when you look at supply, it's running massive deficits too. We have roughly half as many homes for sale as we traditionally should have. And so it's this very volatile, very, very inflecting market that we're seeing right now. You're seeing ups and downs. And uh, we've seen uh, multiple inflections over the last 18 months or so out there in the housing market. And so I think that's why it's somewhat of a challenging market to talk about um, is because you have to be very acute and very specific in terms of the data that you're looking at and you really want that timely data and the detail around that data to really understand what's going on, because it has been a, a quickly shifting market, both in terms of interest rates and in terms of, of the housing market itself. So let's talk about 8% mortgage rates, because that's what is really catching a lot of attention. The 10-year today was below 4.8, about 4.7% this morning. But it seems like it's only a matter of time before it hits a critical mark, which pushes rates to 8%. So are we going to see that number? When can we expect that? Yeah, that's a good question. If you would have asked me that question two months ago, I would have kind of chuckled and said, you know, pro probably not, right? 8% probably isn't in the cards. And then we've seen that 10-year Treasury push higher and higher, as you mentioned. Uh, if you look at our ICE conforming 30-year fixed rate index, right? It looks at rate lock data and it, it, you know, it looks at where borrowers are locking in rates each and every day. If you look at that spread between 10-year treasuries that you were talking about and where borrowers are locking in rates, it's been, you know, 275 to 300 basis points, 2.75 to 3%. So if you look at what that means with 10-year treasuries at, at four and three quarters, like you mentioned today, that means mortgage rates at seven and a half to seven and three quarter. That's not significantly removed from 8%. That's not out of the cards, as, as you mentioned. And it would take that 10-year treasury getting up to maybe 5%, five and a quarter. So we're talking a quarter to a half a percent above where it is today 
for 8% mortgage rates to become reality, if not almost the norm out there in the market. And so something that we thought, you know, probably wouldn't exist or wouldn't be in the cards a couple of months ago is now, you know, feeling like uh, at least a possibility, right? It's not a certainty that we're going to go there, but at least an outside chance that, that we will. And a lot of it's going to come on what we see or depend on what we see from data, right? The Fed's taking, as they said, a very data dependent approach. The reason that rates have been moving higher and 10-year treasuries have been moving higher is because a lot of that labor market and economic data has been coming in strong over the last month. And folks are buying into that higher for longer trend. And so that's what you're seeing out there right now. Now, we did see a relatively weak number today, as you mentioned. If we see a few more of those, then maybe it starts to turn and we start to see rates move a little bit lower. But we've certainly been on an upward swing over the last couple of months. When rates were approaching 7%, people were pretty freaked out. That was a pretty psychological number. But then now rates are approaching 8% and people are freaking out again. So can you talk a little bit about the psychological impact of 8% rates? Uh, what does that do to home, home buyers as well as homeowners looking to sell? Sure. And I, I mean, even if you go before that, a year ago, we were having a psychological impact from 6%, right? And we've moved past that. We've somewhat moved past the 7%, although I don't think folks really like to look at 7% interest rates either. There's certainly some psychological impact, especially when you hit those major milestones, but it's a pretty consistent impact across those rate bands. When you start to look at mortgage demand, it didn't fall off significantly more when you moved from 6.9 to 7.1% than it did at any other rate interval. And so I think a lot of it just simply has to do with the math of it, right? And when you start to run the math on even 7% interest rates, it's tight, it's certainly tighter at 7 um, and a half um, and, and up to 8% would, would constrain things even more. I mean, when you're looking at it from a home buyer perspective, a 1% rise in rates is a 12% reduction in buying power. That's just simply the way that the math works. And so when you go from seven to seven and a half, like we have over the last two months, your buying power comes down 6%. If we went from where we are today to 8%, your buying power is going to come down another 6%. So I think it's more mathematical in terms of the way that the market truly reacts to it. But certainly, you know, nobody wants to see a, a, an 8% interest rate. We'll return to that point on buying power a little bit later. But can you talk a little bit about home prices, right? So when rates went to 7%, we, okay, buyer demand dried up or whatever. Home prices haven't fallen. In your latest mortgage monitor report, home prices are up again and again. And again. So I'm curious, like, when will prices start to drop? Yeah. And I mean, we kind of quickly forget about what happened late last year because we did move into a corrective environment last year. In fact, uh, from like June of de to December of last year, especially in the West Coast, we saw some of the sharpest and quickest price corrections we've ever seen. Now, they didn't get extremely deep like we saw during the great financial crisis, but we certainly saw prices react to rising interest rates last year. What we've seen this year is sellers kind of react to that and sellers are less willing to sell and accept price declines. It's become a very sticky price uh, environment out there. And so if you look at inventory, that's as much of what I watch when I start to look at, you know, price risk out there in the market as I do home affordability, because the markets, Austin's a great example of this. Austin's the one market where uh, inventory is still back to normal levels. That's a market where prices are still very, very weak and you're still, you know, in somewhat of a corrective environment there. Whereas the majority of markets have actually seen inventory fall this year again, right? And so we're now in kind of this reheating trend or we have been uh, out there in the market and, and home prices came in very, very strong in August. So I think part of it has to do with the affordability and interest rate component. I think you're going to see that constrained demand and cool things off. The big question to me when I look at, you know, 
will we move into a corrective environment or what will home prices do over the next few months is inventory, right? Does this allow inventory to grow? Are sellers still willing to sell? Um, in the last few years, we've been, moved into kind of an above average growth in inventory late in the year anyway. This could contribute to that. So the inventory numbers are really what what I'll be watching closely here over the next few months that I think are going to tell the story of, of what prices do. Do they stay sticky or do we start to see them correct a little bit? Uh, who is the biggest winner? I've been asking people this because we know who is losing. Mortgage lenders are losing business. Real estate brokers, there are no homes to sell. Then how you know how can they make a commission? But beyond that, who is actually sort of benefiting or being able to take advantage of higher rates? I think there are a few different uh, groups, right? Existing homeowners are, are the easy answer. They, they were able to lock in these record low rates. They're locked in for the next 30 years. They're seeing home prices at record highs, two and a half percent above the highs that we saw last year. They're seeing their equity after taking a hit late last year re return to near record highs again this year and, and seeing their home values go up on a, on a very low monthly uh, mortgage payment. So existing homeowners are, are loving where they're at. And that's part of the problem for everyone else is they're not wanting to give that up and, and pass that along to anybody else because they're holding tight on to that. Right. So. Uh, folks that locked in purchases before the pandemic or early in the pandemic and were able to refi or purchase at low mortgage rates are absolutely winners in today's market. And you could look at new builds as well, right? Builders out there in the market. You're, when you look at uh, the, the absolute lack of inventory out there and still relatively strong demand, given uh, where interest rates are right now, those new builds are picking up market share most certainly. So I think they would probably tell you, no, I mean, they're, they're struggling and there, there are challenges for builders and that's absolutely true. But in terms of overall market share, they're certainly picking up market share in today's environment. And there's a, a need for that new build activity out there. So just taking a second to tell our audience that if you have any questions for Andy, uh, please put them in the chat and we will come to them at a later time. Uh, just drilling down into that new build market. So a lot of builders have been able to offer uh, buy downs and that has helped buy down meaning you know, they, they help the, the mortgage rate, you know, to, for lack of a better word, they bring down the mortgage rate for uh, buyers, which helps them with that monthly payment. Can you talk a little bit about how long they can keep that up, basically? And as rates go higher and higher, that means they have to put more and more of their cash towards this effort, right? They do, right? And, and you, you mentioned it. Buy downs became popular, especially late last year. And they came in the form of two one buy downs where the first year you got a 2% lower interest rate, second year you got a 1% lower interest rate, and then the third year it would return to norm or three two ones, which is a similar concept over a, over a three year span with the thought that you know by the time we get two years out or three years out, folks would be able to refinance out of these high interest rates they're getting right now into a lower interest rate environment, right? So it's, it's somewhat of an assumption that interest rates are gonna go down in the future. And they became very popular late last year for a couple of different reasons. One was home affordability was very, very low late last year. That's the first time we hit 38 year lows of home affordability was when rates climbed above 7% last year. But the other reason that they became popular last year is because the housing market softened late last year, right? We went from this growth cycle to a corrective environment and sellers were willing to give concessions for the first time in three to four years since the pandemic started, right? And a lot of this comes from the seller side of the house where they're putting that cash down, as you mentioned up front, to buy down these interest rates for the potential buyers. They've actually became less popular through much of 2023, not because affordability got better. Affordability is still a challenge, but the housing market is so hot that folks haven't had to give those types of incentives. Buyers have just had to deal with the higher interest rate. 
And so to your point, I think they could actually come back into vogue a little bit later this year if home prices start to soften. All right, we already know interest rates are high. That provides incentive from, from the buyer side to take these on. If it softens for sellers and they're not able to offload that inventory, then I think you're going to see these come back uh, into vogue a, a little bit more. So just on rates in general, every place has a different sort of, it is a variation. Not every lender is going to quote you the same rate. I mm -hmm. cover Freddie Mac's weekly report. I cover the Mortgage Bank Association's weekly reports. And then we get a lot of other places. Can you talk a little bit about why there's so much variation between lenders on all these mortgage products? Yeah, absolutely. And, and really the mortgage rate that you get in its simplest form is going to depend on your credit worthiness and the, and the credit and the mortgage program that you're going into. So if you're taking out an FHA or a VA mortgage, you're going to get a different interest rate than a conforming mortgage. If you put more cash down to buy a home, you're going to get a better interest rate than if you're uh, taking out 100% financing. So a lot of the difference aside from timing has to do with what loans that they're looking at. Are they looking at something all encompassing for the entire market? Are they looking at something more for the most popular and credit worthy borrowers, which is kind of where your Freddie Mac is. Um, at, at ICE, we have an index suite that has 80 different interest rate indexes, right? So you can look at all of these individually, but we have one called the 30 year fixed conforming index that looks more like the Freddie Mac primary mortgage market survey, but it looks like it looks at loans being originated on our software the day before. And so you're seeing rates locked in even before those loans close. You can see what borrowers are actually locking in and you can kind of narrow that down to the segment of the market that you want to want to look at. Um, and again, if you look at that uh, ICE 30 year conforming fixed rate index as of yesterday, it was over seven and a half percent. So you are seeing that tick upward and you can kind of use the spreads on that to estimate where interest rates are going based on where, where 10 year yields are as well. So let's talk about buying power. So talk about what is the monthly mortgage payment today versus before the pandemic. I'm assuming that has jumped. <laughs> Some people have had rates at 2%. Can you imagine at 7% how much they extra they would have to pay? Because to your point, affordability is at a, I guess in your report, you say 38 year low. That's, mm -hmm. that's a significant drop in affordability. So can you talk about the how the jump in payments for the typical buyer? Yeah, it, it's been a pretty astonishing jump in payment. In fact, the average payment amount for borrowers has uh, is over $2,000. I think it was $2,300 plus the last time I looked out there. And it's the first time that we've ever averaged over $2,000 a month for the entire country in terms of just average mortgage payments. And so you have seen that rise significantly over the past few months. If you, there's a few different ways to look at it, right? You can look at your out of pocket and then you can look at your buying power overall. And there's a whole segment that we could do on how borrowers behave in different environments and how when rates fall, instead of putting monthly savings into their pocket, they ended up just going out there and buying more house and, and bidding up home prices. And, and there's this whole uh, mentality that drill, really drives a lot of what goes on in the housing market. But if you look at buying power specifically, to get back to your original question, again, it's a kind of a 12 to one ratio, right? A 1% rise in interest rates is a 12% reduction in buying power. So if you look at you know, what was going on in July and August, we were at sub 7% interest rates. Now we're at seven and a half. Again, your buying power is down about 6% from where it was just a couple of months ago. And obviously that constrains how much you're able to, to bid out there on, on homes and constrains home prices and should slow things down a little bit. Hmm. And in many parts of the country, home prices are rising faster than wages. Wages have mostly stagnated. So it almost seems like buying power is actually eroding further and further as we sort of 
don't have a big increase in wages. Can you talk a little bit about whether we could maybe, how do we resolve this basically? <laughs> that, I, honestly, that is the key question of the housing market right now. Because if you look at home affordability, it triangulates three things. It triangulates home prices, incomes, and interest rates. And it is way out of whack right now from an affordability standpoint for two different reasons. One, to your point, you've seen significantly more growth in home prices, especially in recent years than you've seen in incomes and obviously the rise in interest rates as well. The home prices outrising or, or outpacing incomes has really been happening for multiple decades out there in the market. And the reason that that's been able to happen is because for the past three to four decades at large, interest rates have come in, been coming down. So you can buy more and more home with the same amount of income, and it allows home prices to significantly outpace income growth for an extended period of time. So back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, there was kind of a three and a half to one ratio home price to income. Is We lived in that range for multiple decades there. Uh, again, 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, that's kind of where we lived. We're close to a six to one ratio right now because home prices have outpaced incomes for so long. At some point, if we're going to go back to interest rates in the early 2000s, at some point you've got to revert back to that ratio uh, in, in the early 2000s of what home values are worth compared to incomes. And that can happen one of two ways, right? It can happen with prices coming down to some degree to make up that difference, or it can be prices growing at a slower pace or, or remaining relatively flat to allow incomes to grow to catch up. But we're, we're significantly out of whack right now. And it would take an extended period of time where incomes outpaced home price growth for us to get back to a long run average and for us to be able to live in a seven to seven and a half percent interest rate environment and have home affordability back to long run averages. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because now then we're sort of looking at the labor market weekend and doesn't seem like that wages are going to increase anytime soon. But then again, nobody has a crystal ball, right? So let's talk about refin refinancing because in today's uh, report that I covered, it looks like refinancing is all but dried up. You know, there was a big drop as rates increased. Who is refinancing right now? And can you talk about what are some of their motivations? Uh, you, you covered that in your report, but just tell the audience a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to your point, the market is almost entirely purchased right right now. Uh, refinances hit record lows late last year. And so that, that volume has largely dried up. And again, it's a very, very purchase centric origination market to the greatest degree that we've seen in the last 30 years. Right. So heavily centered around purchase in terms of what's going on out there in term, uh, in, in refinancing activity. It is the most abnormal refinance market in terms of, of who's out there transacting. A lot of folks would think, well, you know, it's, it's borrowers that took out their mortgage in the early 2000s or late 90s that, you know, are the only folks that have interest rates above where, where they're at today that are refinancing on a, on a very delayed spectrum. That's not what's happening out there. What you're actually seeing is the vast majority, I'm talking 90% of all refinancing is coming from borrowers that are actually willing to increase their interest rate to refinance, which sounds really peculiar. Um, and you kind of think, well, why would anybody do that? Well, they're borrowers withdrawing equity from their home, right? So 90% of refinancing right now is cash out transactions out there in the market. The average borrower refinancing is raising their interest rate by 2.3%. So that's equivalent to going from a 5% rate to a seven and a quarter, a little over seven and a quarter percent interest rate. And the people that are willing to do that, and again, it's a, a relatively small population, but the people willing to do that are folks that have very low first lien mortgages coming into that refinance, right? So they have very low rates, 
but it's on a relatively low balance. And they're looking to uh, extract large sums of equity from their home. The average equity withdrawal via cash out refinance right now is about $100,000, right? And, and the reason that that makes sense is you're giving up a, a record low rate on a relatively low balance, but you're getting your equity withdrawal at a slightly better interest rate than what you get on a HELOC. And so when you run the math for some of those borrowers, cash outs actually make a little bit more sense for low balance borrowers taking out large sums of equity than a HELOC does. If you've got a low for, or excuse me, if you have a very large initial mortgage and you're withdrawing a smaller chunk of equity, HELOCs is where, where the math makes the most sense. Uh, the other place where folks are focusing on cash outs is more modest credit score borrowers, folks that wouldn't qualify for a HELOC that tend to be obviously second lien products, they will require you to have higher credit scores. So folks in the lower 700 range in terms of credit scores are, are also looking more towards cash outs because that's where they can qualify to withdraw some of their equity as well. That is interesting because that then speaks to people reacting to higher home prices and sort of cashing in on their home, trying mm -hmm. to at least tap on that 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 asset that they have, the prized ultra low mortgage keep, but then kind of giving it up to, which is very interesting um, to see that. So can you talk about the difference again between the person opting for a HELOC versus a cash out? Uh, if, if you're a homeowner trying to decide between the two, uh, can you talk about the, the biggest differences? So to speak? Yeah, yeah. And, and every borrower is going to be different. Every homeowner is going to be different. So everybody needs to look at their unique situation and decide what's best for them. But when you look at HELOCs, they tend to be second lien products. They tend to have higher credit score requirements to qualify because it's a, it's a riskier product for lenders to lend on, right? They're lending on a second lien position. And so if prices fall, they could be completely wiped out. And we saw a lot of that during the great financial crisis. And so um, it, it requires higher credit scores in order to get into those types of products. That being said, they allow you to keep your first lien interest rate where it's at. So say you have, you were one of the lucky ones and you got a two and a half percent first lien interest rate and you have a $400,000 mortgage, you don't want to give that up, right? You don't want to raise that entire balance that you have up to today's seven and a half percent interest rate because it's going to become extremely expensive to withdraw that equity from your home. You want to keep that where it's at and then just withdraw the amount of equity that you're looking to borrow against at that higher interest rate. And then you could pay that debt off individually and still keep your record low uh, rate. So for the, for the majority of homeowners, especially those that qualify, HELOCs have become very popular. In fact, when you look at total equity withdrawals, we're seeing the largest share of equity withdrawals come from HELOCs that we've ever seen because mm -hmm. folks are locked into those low first lien rates. And so you're seeing, you know, very attractive HELOCs, but with HELOC interest rates being tied to the Fed and those being up over eight and a half percent on average right now, you know, it's, it's causing some folks to either rethink using equity overall, or especially those that have lower first lien balances. To, to lean more towards those cash out products, give up the low rate on your relatively low balance and withdraw all of that equity at a better interest rate than what you get on a HELOC. Got it. So I'm just gonna turn to a couple of audience questions and then we'll return to my questions. But Neil is asking a really interesting question about how long people stay in their homes. People used to move every seven years and now with rates going higher, are people gonna stop having children or take jobs in faraway locations because they have these Great low rates. I mean, does do do low do ultra low rates change the way people sort of think about their home? Is the general question there? Yeah, I think I think the answer is yes. And there were a lot of questions in there again that we could we could talk about for a long time there. Um, but just to to get down to the simple point of do low interest rates impact homeowner behavior? I think they absolutely do. Um, they absolutely impact whether you're willing to list your home for sale or not. We've, we've got some MLS data tied to our mortgage performance data. 
and we we can look at you know what share of homes are listed in different interest rate bands. And when we've done that in the past, you see that folks that have low fixed rate mortgages are less likely to list their home for sale. Now it could be either that they're going to stay there and live, or it could be the quote unquote accidental landlords that we've seen pop out that, you know, I got married and we want to consolidate into one home, but I have a low rate on the, the home that I previously owned. I traditionally would sell it, but now I'm going to rent it because I can cash flow it. And it's, uh, a great opportunity that I wasn't really expecting to have. And so you're seeing, you're certainly seeing it. If you talk to any real estate agent out there, they're having those conversations on a day in and day out basis of folks that would traditionally want to move. They would want to move up, but they feel very tied to the existing interest rate on their home right now. And I think you are going to see that elongate uh, time of ownership um, and impact a lot of different decisions. Uh, there was a migration question in there as well. I don't know if we want to talk about that one or if, if we want to move on, but there's some, I mean, there's a lot of different components there. It is just one, one thought about the accidental landlords. I'm reading more and more on social media. Like I have this house, it's too big for me or it's too, I have to move back to the office and whatever. So I'm going to rent it out. But that, that's, I like that term accidental landlords, but, but just the second point return to work. Is that going to cause a drop in home prices? I think people are thinking, oh, maybe people will sell because they need to work in the city or in D.C. or New York or, I don't know, about San Francisco. I don't know how many yeah. people are back. But is that going to trigger drop in prices? that going to trigger selling? Uh, it's a good question. Let's go back to why it happened in the first place, right? Go back to early in the pandemic when everybody was dispersing from city centers and you saw city centers really struggle because everybody went to, to work from home and they make migrated. I'm, I'm in here in Colorado. We had a bunch of migration up to the mountains because everybody got to live their dream of living and working in the mountains and not having to be close to home. And so you saw all of this massive price pressure. We call them pandemic boom towns because everybody moved to specific locations to live their dreams because they could work from anywhere. And it had massive upward pressure on prices. We're seeing some mean reversion there after that migration activity. Um, so it, it's possible that we could see the opposite, right? If we see this back, this big back in office, back to city center, and you're hearing a few companies go back to that, um, it could cause some reverse pressure, especially in those uh, city centers. I think a big part of that question is, what do we ultimately see from corporations? Do they, do they stick with this work from home model? It seems like most folks are going to a, a hybrid model right now where you have to do some commuting, but you don't have to be quite as close because you're only doing it a couple of days a week. And so I think, yes, it has the potential to impact the housing market. We've absolutely seen it have a massive impact um, in the, the migration outward trend. I guess my question is more, you know, where are, where are corporations ultimately going to go, right? Do we do we see it go fully back to, to uh, in-house or in-office work? You know, I, I think people are loving their work from home right now. And so I, I think we'll, we'll, we'll see whether that, that fully plays out, but it does have the potential to impact price trends, especially when you see uh, big migrations like that. It's interesting. When we first uh, began working from home, I had to rearrange my entire life completely. <laughs> my life has been completely appended because I have a had a child since and now going back to work is a little bit tough for me I think much tougher for a lot of other people who have moved further away from the city center but I want to talk about assumable mortgages okay I, I am very interested in this concept I think a lot of people are can you talk about how they work and is it popular a lot of people doing going through this route yeah, you're hearing a lot of talk about assumable mortgages. So let's start with what they are, right? An assumable mortgage is a mortgage where, you know, I, I take out a mortgage, I go to sell my home, I can transfer my mortgage along with that home sale and the new buyer can assume my mortgage, which means they assume the, the full balance, 
They assume the terms of my mortgage. They assume the monthly payment. And most importantly, or attractively, they assume my interest rate that I already had on my home. The mortgages out there that are assumable are FHA, VA, and USDA mortgages have assumability clauses. Now you need to qualify for those mortgages to be able to assume them, but then you can assume borrower's interest rates. So in today's environment, at face value, that looks very, very attractive and, and like something that would really be exploding very, very quickly, right? So if we look at it by the numbers, 12 million active assumable mortgages out there. That means effectively just under a quarter, just under 25% of all mortgaged homes in the US have an assumable mortgage. About 7.2 million or about 14% of all mortgages are assumable and you could assume them and they have an interest rate below 4%. That sounds like a lot. That sounds very attractive. Um, there's a reason why they haven't become as popular as maybe you'd expect, right? And some of them are for borrower reasons and some of them are for dollar reasons, right? So um, if you look at it from a seller's perspective, two thirds of these mortgages that could be assumed at a sub 4% interest rate were taken out in the last three and a half years, right? So back to the question we got earlier about how long folks are staying in their homes. If you've taken out your mortgage in the last three and a half years, if you bought your home in the last three and a half years, probably not ready to sell quite yet. If you refinance in the last three years, you know, there was the expectation that you were going to stay there for a period of time to recoup the cost of refinancing. So one, folks may not be ready to give these up from a timing perspective. Two, we've been talking about this a lot in our conversation today. Those rates are not just attractive to somebody looking to buy your home. They're attractive to you as a homeowner, right? You've got those savings locked in. If you sell and move somewhere else, you're having to go from a sub 4% interest rate to a 7.5% interest rate right now. So folks don't want to give up those assumable mortgages because they're just as attractive to them as they are to you. And then the third piece is the home price growth and how that's affect, affected the assumability equation, right? So say I want to buy your home. I can't just go in there and assume your mortgage and we're, we're even, right? Uh, on average, if you look at assumable mortgages out there, the average home value is current home value today is $375,000. The average mortgage amount is $225,000, right? So on average, you have to bring 150,000 additional dollars on top of just assuming their mortgage and their payment. Either I need to come with $150,000 of cash on average or some combination of cash and secondary financing, which one, I have to qualify for, and two, it's going to come at a higher interest rate. And that offsets some of the savings from assuming their mortgage. So it's, it's certainly attractive. And you're seeing more of that activity and more of that conversation that we've seen in the past. But there are some barriers, both in terms of sellers wanting to give up those assumable mortgages and some of the secondary funds that you ought to bring to the table, along with just assuming a buyer's uh, mortgage. Kyle has a question about adjustable rate mortgages. Uh, I think in today's report, we saw an uptick in people turning to adjustable mortgages because arms, as they call it, lower mortgage rate. Uh, can you talk about, you know, is that going to sort of increase? Is that share going to increase? And historically, like when has it been the highest? Yeah, it, it is increasing, right? Especially when you look at more recent originations, you're seeing the arm share increase. When you look at the share of all mortgages in the U.S. that are adjustable rate mortgages, it was 25% back in 2005, 6, 7, before the great financial crisis. And, and a lot of folks point to that, that rise in arm loans and especially some of the exotic features around mortgages at, the, at that time, along with their adjustable features uh, that, that caused some of the crisis back in uh, 2008, 9, 10. 
But if you look at the share of outstanding mortgages that are adjustable rate mortgages, it's 5% roughly right now. In fact, we hit record lows in recent years in terms of the, the dependence in the US on adjustable rate mortgages. It has ticked up, right? Because borrowers are kind of stretching themselves right now. And they're saying, you know, if, if interest, it's almost the same conversation we were having with buy downs earlier, right? If, if I'm going to be stretched right now, I'm going to look for a way to maybe make it a little bit easier for myself right now. And I can refinance out of that in the future. And so some folks leaning on adjustable rate mortgages and saying, I'm going to take the low fixed rate right now. And then when it resets, and most of these have five, seven, 10 year initial fixed periods in five years, in seven years, in 10 years, hopefully at some point between now and then interest rates will come down and I can refinance and, and move back into a fixed rate mortgage. And so that's, you know, the mentality in the market right now and, and how borrowers are behaving. There's still a relatively small portion of the market. Um, but they have gained popularity as bars are trying to stretch themselves and find creative ways to kind of, uh, you know, operate in what's a really low affordability environment right now. So we're out of time, but I still want to throw in one last question for you, if you don't mind, Andy. Sure. But yeah. looking back a decade from now, okay, fast forward to the future. Uh, I don't know if we both will be, I'll be covering <laughs> the year in mortgage. Who knows where we'll be, but how would you describe this period right now to someone in the future? Uh, maybe you want a second to think maybe, but how would you describe the current housing market to someone 10 years down the line? Abnormal, right? I think it, when you look back now, the two times that you see that are abnormal is the late 1970s, early 1980s during the Volcker era when mortgage rates pushed up to 18%, right? Everybody talks about them taking out their first mortgage at 18%. That was abnormal, right? And we had that environment where things became way out of skew and it took a long time to recover. And then the great financial crisis. And then this will be the third, right? We'll talk about this in those types of veins. The outcomes are going to be very, very different. I think it's going to take us several years in, for us to get back to what feels like a, a normal housing market, if not longer. Um, but it will be a big blip in the radar and there will be a lot of lessons learned about how the economy reacts to different uh, incentives and different rate environments, how mortgage performance, how the housing market reacts. This will be a huge learning lesson and there will be a lot of models built off of the data that's come out already in the pandemic and what happens here over the next two to three years. Uh, the historic pandemic has led to a historic frenzy and now a historic lull in the housing market. So. It Books will be written about this too. There right? will be a lot of books. <laughs> uh, thank you, Andy, for joining us. And that's all the time we have. Uh, thank you for joining us again. And we hope that the rest of you will listen to our next episode tomorrow. Baron Senior Managing Editor Lauren R. Roblin and healthcare industry reporter Jonathan Nathan Katzis discuss recent developments in biotech, pharma, and other segments of the healthcare market and the outlook for healthcare companies and stocks. So thank you for listening, everyone. Stay safe and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.